Welcome to The Bulb, a podcast shedding light on gendered violence. In each edition, we'll explore aspects of this violence. What is thought about it, what we know about it, or what is yet to be revealed. The Bulb is a podcast series brought to you by the Queensland Centre for Domestic and Family Violence Research. Thank you for joining us as we share knowledge to improve the lives of women and their children. In this episode of The Bulb, Pauline Woodbridge OAM shines her light on the history of the domestic violence sector in Queensland. Feminist and activist Pauline takes us back to the 1980s and guides us on a path to the 21st century by way of her recounting her work with survivors and perpetrators of violence in North Queensland and beyond. Okay, well, I guess in the 1980s, I was studying at university and was being involved in the local welfare services. And I think at the beginning, I was um, volunteering at some youth services. I also was volunteering at an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander drop-in centre, um, just helping out. And, and that was like as expected of you as part of your studies. And then in the around 1984, I um, became involved with a group of uh, women from one of the church groups who were setting up a safe place for women. And I must admit that I had a much more practical bent, but those women had this nice idea about, you know, making nice things for the, for the families that were going to be coming and crocheting and knitting and, um, you know, providing a nice environment. And uh, I guess I was uh, increasingly able to give some practicalities around that, to be a bit more real about what the families would be facing and what needed to be done and so on. And so um, I was stayed with them for about four years, uh, working with the clients themselves, the women who came in. And of course, at that time, you saw the full gamut of mental illness and violence and homelessness and poverty and discrimination and um, people, women involved with um, child safety and family court and so on. So it was an amazing grounding for me. And I certainly wouldn't label myself as a feminist at that time. But around that time, I was increasingly working with and doing um, some things with the Women's Centre, which was a feminist women's only space. And so my feminism absolutely grew. And so that was when um, I became involved in the domestic violence work in the, at the Women's Centre. And um, over and, and that period from 1985 until my recent retirement in 2019 was the most amazing period of time for the domestic violence sector. I think at that time we just called it the domestic violence field because that's um, how we saw ourselves. It was very small. The women's shelters had been established for a while, but it was as a result of the Queensland Domestic Violence Task Force that the um, funding started to flow into other areas. And so I actually applied for and was a successful coordinator of the Regional Domestic Violence Service. And, um, and I actually stayed there doing that work for 25 years. So I initiated and started that service. So it was really exploring and um, 
discovering what was the best ways to respond and what were the principles that we should be using. And it was all uh, you know, predicated on the learnings of the women's movement, you know, the, being a feminist, having a feminist analysis. And so there was definitely um, a, a, a time of great development and exploring and discovery. There was so much going on, so many uh, ways that we were able to advocate and make changes, identify gaps, be attending meetings and demanding that, you know, this is a problem or uh, even uh, influencing policy, partnering with the department people who also were working in the, you know, who had the responsibility for domestic violence issues. And so at that time, there was very much that feeling that we're all in this together. We're all learning as we go. And uh, there was uh, not a huge amount of funding, but there was always this idea that as we knew and learnt and grew, and, and as we learnt more and as we grew, more funding would flow and we move into other areas. And so that whole period of um, setting up the values that we would work from, and then from those values came the frameworks. And so the sector itself, or the field itself, was starting to say to the governments, we need things like practice standards. And so we, the governments set up meetings and did consultations, and we were able to um, have a really hands-on approach with the practice standards about what made sense to us from what we were doing. And uh, those practice standards have held us in very good stead. And it was only last year that they were being reviewed and contemporised to um, meet the current uh, service delivery. But they were things, it was things like that that we were able to get up and um, ensure that we weren't just blowing in the wind. We definitely had purpose. We knew what that purpose was. And those values around those purposes, that purpose was so important. And that was about stopping violence. And this was the time in the, in the field where we were debating things like, is it a good idea to have government funding? Or, you know, how will that restrict us? Yeah, so we were debating a whole range of uh, ideas about how things should work and about what principles and what um, values were so important. And so it was at that time where there was a very strong view that came over from the shelter movement that said, once the community understands the issues of gender, power and control, um, the, the behaviours of perpetrators, that, um, that society will adjust itself and we will gain equality. And so, you know, women's oppression would stop. And part of that women's oppression was the violence against women. And so for our particular bit of the sector, the domestic violence sector, it was about stopping the violence. But there was that larger sort of feminist women's movement idea is to expose the inequalities in our society, to um, empower women to uh, come out of the home and to have life opportunities the same as men. That was the principal idea really was that once all of that was established. Places like the shel women's shelters and the other services would actually close. There'd be no need for them anymore. We weren't that naive that we didn't think there would be some violence still occur because, you know, every study shows you that the most violence in our society is men's violence against men. And then the second lot of, and that's in public places usually, and then the next most prevalent violence is men's violence against women. 
And in those very early days, the children were there, but kind of dangling. And I think the principle we had at that time is if we got the mother out and into a safe place with the children, then the children would be okay. And that was one area of development all through that time where more and more we were able to understand that children weren't okay and that they needed attention themselves. But that was what was prevailing in those very early days as we were developing you know, the basis of the sector that we have today. Uh, there was also, um, there was also, it was also a period of very low wages for the women who were working in these fields too. And so there was a great um, movement, a great interest in connecting with the union movement because the union movement also had a women's uh, department, I suppose, at that time. And so there was a lot of work being done about uh, the actual workforce itself in terms of getting an award and describing what the workforce was and what its parameters and frameworks were and uh, what award. So that, there was a lot of lobbying and work on that award by many, many people and that award, award was successful for the whole of the welfare sector which start, you know, really helped with the professionalising and the establishment um, of, of the welfare sector as being a, a legitimate part of our society. So that was definitely a time where there was huge changes, there was huge development, um, there was a lot of research. We had the Partnerships Against Domestic Violence in, 19, two, in 2004. We had the, uh, the development of a lot of networks in the north and in central Queensland and in southern Queensland. We had um, uh, um, a whole range of things that were going on all the time. And so for me as a worker, I was, you know, setting up at the beginning but then helping work in the service itself because we tried to work on a very flat structure. So that was another principle is that we weren't going to replicate the hierarchical uh, ways of mainstream but to in fact have a very flat structure. And so I worked alongside the workers. We weren't a, a collective at that when we set up, but certainly that some of the principles about uh, consensus decision making and sharing information and so on. And that was another really good part of that time again too was that as we were developing information and developing programs and developing new understandings, that was all shared between our colleagues. So ideas like intellectual property hadn't entered into the field at all and so it was really important for all of us to learn from each other and to share with each other and to be very collegial and I think in a regional town where I was that works really well because you know what your boundaries are, you know who's who and who's working in where and what services that we've got and you're able to work very effectively so where there was gaps you could come together and, and cover those gaps um, and find ways to fix the problems, whatever they were, because of the, um, the closeness, I suppose, and the feeling that we were all working towards the same purpose. So an exciting time, and, a, um, and I was, because of my position as well, I was able to be involved in an amazing range of things that were being developed. So I was part of helping to set up and develop new services as funding came on, on board. And so um, when I look around my community now, it's really amazing to think, yeah, I was there right at the beginning of that and 
and so on. And so um, that uh, that's the possibility if you work in this sector. You need a lot of flexibility. You need a lot of creativity. Uh, you need to be able to uh, respond quickly to things. You need to be fairly tactful. So even though you might be, a, you know, have a real feminist understanding and you're wanting to really get the issues across, finding ways to do that that doesn't alienate others is an also a really important skill. And so the. Um, the very slow, sometimes feeling of one step forward and one, you know, two steps back was certainly a feature. But at the same time, it was a time of great growth, great partnerships with the department, great partnerships with other people in your sector and in your, your broader community sector. I had to do a placement as part of my studies and I actually went to New Zealand and worked with a men's behaviour change program there. And I um, really saw the sense of that. So the idea was we can't keep band-aiding women all the time. You, you know, the amount of, especially Indigenous women, who needed to just go back because they had other business, they had children, they had all sorts of, you know, connections to their own communities. You can't just remove them and put them into a safe place. That's very temporary while you put other things in place. But in the end, these women still have to live their life within our communities in ways that they choose that make sense to them. And so it seems, you know, it really was a growing feeling is that the problem actually was not the women, the problem was the men who were doing the violence. And so learning a lot about the Duluth model and learning about the Men's Behaviour Change Program and actually working in that program in New Zealand while I was there made me an incredible, incredibly enthusiastic about how good that is and how necessary that is. So I was able to bring that back to my regional town and we set up, uh, in 1996, we actually started working with men who used violence. So the job of convincing people that this was a good idea, that you need to send your male clients that you know, like from the police and community corrections and all, you know, all of the uh, various welfare services, about you need to be, when you've, when you've got men who are using violence, don't ignore that. Um, you must, you, you know, you need to um, send these men to us and we'll work with them to try and um, teach them about, uh, you know, they must stop the violence. But at the same time, about what attitudes and beliefs do you hold and how can you learn to change them? You know, we had the principle that violence is learned and can be unlearned. And that was the underlying principle. Another underlying principle was, although we were working with the men, our real client was the women and the safety of women and children. So that brings me back to children, because over that, again, over those years that we're talking about, we it became more and more evident that children needed assistance as well. And there was just a very few services where children were funded across Queensland and were, uh, I guess, the department or the funding bodies watched them to see how effective they were. And so in 1999, in my regional domestic violence service, we started working with children and their mothers. So it was always very important to us that the, the, um, the, the knowledge that the perpetrator would really um, drive a gap or a, a drive a wedge between the mother and the children, would denigrate the mother to the children, uh, he would, um, you know, separate the children. He would sometimes take a child away from the mother 
um, using the children against the mother in so many ways. And so the, the program was very much a healing program of the relationship between the children and the mother. And uh, the whole program was set up for that. And it certainly did have its successes as well. And it continues to this day, still using that same model. So there was so many opportunities to start to understand the problem and then start to respond to it. So another um, action that was happening at that time was the revealing of how many deaths of women there were of women at the hands of their partners. And uh, often they were reported in the newspaper and really ways that excuse the male and it would be things like love triangle leads in ends in death and all sorts of headlines like that and so there was work done in with groups of people to try and educate the media about how to report those things properly but there was also a movement called the red rose rallies where every time a woman was killed uh, women from all in from all over um, especially around Queensland, but in other states as well, would go out on the streets with signs and saying, you know, another woman killed, you know, this has to stop. And those things all helped to put the issue of domestic violence and what it really was about. As a regional service, you not only did you work with the people who came into the service looking for help, the men and the women and the children, I should say the women, the children and the men, then um, we also were educating our communities. And so community education and training was a really important aspect of what we did. And so we were out there at the hospitals, at the police station, anywhere, anybody who would take us as a guest speaker to be able to talk about the reality of domestic violence. One interesting thing that I would observe and, and would talk about was that in the early days of domestic violence, women were still very much, in, in my time in domestic violence, women were still very much in the home. Women's employment tended to be, you know, tuck shop or cleaning or something like that. And um, in fact, that was times when women still were often prevented, once you got married, you were, the expectation was that you would go home and raise the children at home and that the husband would be the breadwinner. That was very much the pattern of our society. And so the women were experiencing bruising and black eyes and broken noses and so on. And the idea was that she would stay at home and recover from that. So it was very invisible. And, um, and what's interesting now is now women are very visible in our society. Women are in workplaces. Women are out and about. And women are um, very much um, noticeable in our community now. And so... Domestic violence no longer has as many black eyes. So as a service, we would not be seeing black eyes in that same way. But what we would be seeing is the incredible emotional um, uh, denigrating, putting down uh, financial, all of those sorts of other non-physical violence behaviours. However, strangulation continued, or choking as we called it at that time. And so um, more and more we were developing, our, learning about and developing ideas and connecting with different sectors such as the you know, neurobiology sectors, sectors, for example, who were starting to describe what happened to a woman's brain if she was repeatedly non-fatally choked or strangled. And 
then there was a lot of work done on um, the difficulties of for police and others when the woman alleged, you know, said that she'd been choked. Um, there was uh, finding the evidence because by then we had court, and court had we had protection orders where we could ask the court for um, an order that protected the woman, and uh, had a whole lot of different prohibitions and expectations of the perpetrator's behaviour, and so. Um, being able to have things like choking taking seriously when you didn't have evidence was part of the you know was a difficulty for everybody um, at that time. And unfortunately, when you do do this work over the years that I have, and you talk to the amount of women that you have, even the way the women themselves saw the non-fatal strangulation, as it's called now, the choking is that it was just part of the violence that they were experiencing. The hands around the throat, the squeezing, the throwing down, the bashing against the walls, all of those various things, they were all part of the violence, the pattern of abuse, which didn't happen all the time, but when it did, there was often a predictable pattern of his repeated behaviour. And so one of the things that uh, occurred was that there in Queensland, the uh, legislation of non-fatal strangulation became a criminal offence. And that was always worried me because there was this idea that somehow that could stand alone without looking at those huge um, behaviours that the perpetrator used to keep her in a, a frightened position. Um, and to keep her from revealing what was going on and so on. And I think that's an area that's still difficult. And I should have mentioned earlier that the reason why we had a civil legislation like domestic violence legislation was because the women themselves said in most of the task force and reviews that were done in the early days, is this is the father of my children. I, I love him. I don't want... I don't want him to face criminal charges. I'm not going to make statements against him. And so we, we have the domestic violence sector, even though the behaviour that um, the perpetrator does against his victim is clearly fits in that criminal realm of um, you know, aggravated assault and so on, <clears throat> threats, stalking, all of those things, our responses have been the civil response around safety and around holding perpetrators to account. And I don't think that in the women's sector or in interviews with women that they do think, no, we need a criminal offence uh, rather than a civil offence. There are other countries have a criminal offence, but here we've always taken the word of the women that they did not want that to happen, that they wouldn't testify against their partners. And so we end up with a whole lot of... Um, women and children who go into shelters on a regular basis, move town on a regular basis, try to use the legislation to stop him on a regular basis. And so my view is unless we actually work with him and stop his use of violence, we will just continue with that kind of response which is clearly um, reactive and it's not changing our society with a, you know, it's not changing their, it's not giving them their human rights their rights to natural justice, their rights to real justice, and their human rights to live safely and without fear. Thank you for listening to Pauline, a pioneer whose practice wisdom is illuminating. Her commitment to a working life 
underpinned by principles that have at their core the safety of women and their children is something for which so many are so very grateful. We hope you found this edition of The Bulb Enlightening. If you'd like to know more about our work, please visit noviolence.org.au.